an alcoholic. And my name is Dottie Shore. And I'm so grateful to be here. I wonder if you really know how awesome it is to be asked to come and speak. For many years, people used to say, for God's sake, Dottie, shut up. And you get sober and they pay your way to speak. Now everything changes. I want to thank the committee for the privilege, and I, I'm not saying that to be polite. It is a deep honor and a privilege to me, and I'm always in awe of it, that uh, somebody wants to hear what I have to say. And I must tell you now that this loving lady over here is one of the finest hostesses I've ever had. She's gone above and beyond the call of duty to treat me lovingly, and I thank her. Let's give her a hand, shall we? Happy Mother's Day, you mothers. <laughs> and you fathers. <laughs> I didn't come out right, did it? <laughs> I didn't realize what I said. <laughs> oh dear, I knew I'd do something like that. <laughs> you know, I sat up here on this uh, platform, and I looked out there, and I saw that American flag. And I'm going to ask all of you to stand up and look out that window and let's salute the flag this morning. Look at it out there. Isn't that gorgeous? Look at it. I pledge allegiance of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Thank you. Let's give the flag a hand. You know, we're very fortunate to be sober. We're very blessed to have Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think we're very blessed to live in this country. You know, when you've been around the program a little while, and you hear the 12 steps read over and over and over, and the 12 traditions read over and over. If you're not careful, you're going to go someplace in your mind. Now, I'm not self-obsessed, you understand, but I'm usually thinking about me. <laughs> and one night several years ago, I realized that I had, they'd read the 12 steps, and I hadn't heard word, one word. And it kind of scared me. I thought, hey, dummy, that's what got you sober. So I made a vow that night that I would close my eyes, and I would listen. And if you love the program like I do, and the steps, you're going to read them with meaning, and maybe I'd get some new, thing, new thoughts out of it. So the first night I sat there and closed my eyes, and the leader said, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop stinking. Two <laughs> nights later, someone said, we'll now have Joe read the 12 positions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then someone was to read, um, Animosity is the Spiritual Foundation. <laughs> Please know I'm not making fun of anyone, because the thing that I love is that they read it, and they go right over it and don't realize they've even said it. And I'm sure I'll say something today that I don't really mean to. But I started collecting them, and I really got some beauties. A woman said, um, um, Many of us explained, what an odor. I can't go through with it. And someone was to read, humbly asked him to restore our shortcomings. <laughs> and someone read, no human power can relieve alcoholism, but God couldn't would have caught. 
And lastly, but not least, I think it's the tops. It says, our leaders are but twisted servants. They do not govern. <laughs> so blessed at this roundup. I think we've had a group of the best speakers I have ever heard. How about you guys? Haven't they been great? Oh, just wonderful. Just really great. Well, I'm going to talk to you this morning about a filthy, stinking, rotten, cunning, baffling, powerful disease called alcoholism. And you know, not only are we alcoholics, but we're crazy. You know that, don't you? No place in the world can you be as sick as we are and have so much fun getting well. <laughs> I often think, though, how crazy we are because we take our disease so lightly. There's nobody out there that can help us. I often think about this dread disease called AIDS, and one day they're going to find some cure for this. But there's no cure for alcoholism. They can start between now and 100 years from now, and they will never find a cure for alcoholism because there is no such a thing. We can arrest this disease, but we cannot cure it. And being the personality that you and I have, thank God they can't cure it. Because if we ever found a way we could successfully drink, we'd take this country right down the tubes. You know that, don't you? But I often think, too, about how crazy we are because if everybody in this room, God forbid, had been diagnosed as having AIDS, and they said, we can't cure you, but I'll tell you what, if you go to a meeting two or three nights a week, sit on some hard chairs, drink some lousy coffee, and lie to each other a little bit, we can arrest this disease. There wouldn't be, there wouldn't be places, places here or in Southern California or any place else for, for meeting places. People would so jam it. But you know what happens to us? We get too tired. Or it may be raining out, God forbid, you know, we may shrink or dissolve or something or it's too hot, or it's too cold, or we don't like the speaker, or we have all kinds of issues, or maybe a good television program, so we won't go. But dear God, if we thought for one minute this disease would break out, and it can, so that's why I say we're crazy. We have a very, very peculiar disease. We have an allergy of the body. Now, 1935, Dr. Silkworth said that that's what we had, and I agree with that. I had an allergic daughter, and uh, there was no antihistamines or antibiotics in our day when she was little, and she almost died. She'd have terrible allergies, go into bronchopneumonia, and almost die. So I understand allergy. But about 15, 16 years ago, the only medical group that I know that's done anything on the research of the disease of alcoholism was the Yale Institute on Alcoholic Studies. And I'm so grateful they did this. And they had papers out at that time, and I haven't seen one lately. But they took six alcoholics and hospitalized them until by blood count and urinalysis, the alcohol is out of their system. They asked for six non-alcoholic volunteers. They took these 12 people, gave them a pint of whiskey to drink, and waited 24 hours from the last drink, and again testing again. In every one of the non-alcoholics, they found the alcohol either out of the body totally or in the bladder, ready to be passed out in the urine. So they knew the alcohol had burned up oxidized, gone through the kidneys, into the bladder, and out in the urine, as it's supposed to do. But loved ones, this is the most important statement I can give you today. In every one of the alcoholics, they found the alcohol in the spinal fluid. Now we have a biochemical imbalance. We have a gland in our body that breaks down or never functions. In my particular case, I was alcoholic for drink one. Some of you folks have had good drinking time and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose and you can't do it anymore. It's like the pancreas in the diabetic that fails and you become a diabetic. 
And once you're a diabetic, you're always a diabetic. And once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. So when you and I take alcohol in any form into our body, it goes into our bloodstream, to our spinal fluid, and to our brain. And the first part of our brain that's affected is in the front, and it contains the eye care factor, and that's sedated immediately. That's why one drinks too much and a thousand aren't enough. Now also, they tell me that 2,000 gallons of blood course through our body in 24 hours. So how fast does it take for us to swallow a little bit of flit down our throat to go into our bloodstream, spinal fluid, to our brain? Very quickly. Now, one last visit, a bit of statistics. They take a brain scan of the alcoholic's brain and they'll find all these little white spots, like little cotton balls, small. And it's what is known as dead brain cells. Now, granted, we have billions upon billions upon billions of brain cells, but the, body is, the brain is the only part of our body that cannot repair itself. And so when God is good to us and we have to give the credit where it's due, when we have a dead brain cell, we can, it'll pick up and go around it. But loved ones, there'll come a time when you and I, if we continue to pursue this thing, we will pursue it to the gates of insanity and death, and we will take the drink that will wipe away our ability to make a, dis a decision and stick to it. We'll either die physically or mentally, and perf I'd prefer to die physically myself than to die mentally, and I know people. And if you're around here long enough, you'll know. We call them in and outers. They come in and they sit and they seem to get well for two or three months and they're gone. And they come back and they're out. And they took the drink that wiped away their ability to make a decision. We suffer from a killer disease. It will take our minds or take our, our lives. Or my God, come in. Please come in here and join us and find the only happiness that I believe a human being can find under God's heaven. I thank God today that I'm an alcoholic. Now, that may sound strange to some of you new people, but thank God my neuroses broke out into a disease called alcoholism and drove me beyond my will to come to Alcoholics Anonymous because out of my weakness has come my strength. I'm a far better person today because I'm a sober member of AA than if it had never happened to me. Out of my weakness and out of your weakness will come strength. I wonder if you know how I felt today to be the longest sober member of AA in this room. And I'm only 28 years old. <laughs> but it's a miracle that I'm here. Absolute miracle. Now, my first entrance into Alcoholics Anonymous was on February the 8th, 1950. That was 37 years ago. I was only eight years old when I got here, but... <laughs> I had 19 years of drinking. And I had four and a half years of chronic alcoholism. I was never really drunk and I was never really sober. I weighed 82 pounds. I was suffering from malnutrition. My lips were split and bleeding at the corners. I had these bumps under my neck. They called vitamin deficiency bumps. I was unemployable. I couldn't drive a car on the freeway. I couldn't arrange my hair by myself or buy a dress by myself without five people telling me it was okay. I had two daughters and a husband and I was totally incapable of doing anything. Now I look back and I was not totally incapable, but I had convinced myself that I was totally incapable. And so I was a blob taking up space. Now I had a caricature in my mind of what an alcoholic was. I had a sister two years older than I am. She was a radio singer, junior champion skier, and a model. And she developed cirrhosis of the liver and she had a stomach that swelled the size of a nine months pregnancy. She was wearing dirty blue jeans and a maternity jacket and wandering the streets of Reno, our hometown. 
I happen to be a native Nevadan, by the way, and I'm glad to be back in Nevada. This was a talented woman, and she was a fifth-a-day drinker, the bar type, all that, and see, I was not. I was to pull the window shade down, hide the bottle, crying drunk. Never got in jail, never went to, uh, had an accident, I never left the house. And so this was an alcoholic. And over the Christmas holiday of 1949-1950, we came from California back to Reno. And when I saw my sister, I was horrified. And God forgive me, at that time I called her a dirty alcoholic. Because see, back there it was a dirty word. On the way home, my husband said, I hope you never get to be like that. And I said, don't be silly. I've got too much sense to be, let that happen to me. <laughs> Little did I know I was alcoholic then. But I thought it was how much you drank. I thought it was what you did. So many people come to Alcoholics Anonymous and say, I'm not an alcoholic because I, I eat. <laughs> I've never lost my job. I haven't lost my family. Uh, you know, all these excuses of why you're not an alcoholic. And that doesn't constitute alcoholism. But at any rate, when I got back to California, I decided then that maybe my problem was alcohol. It wasn't because we didn't have enough money or, uh, uh, you know, that my mother treated me badly or any of those things. It was uh, maybe alcohol is my problem and maybe I better quit. So I made up my mind I was going to quit drinking. And I went on my last, what I thought was my last drunk on January the 1st, 1950, and I got hopelessly drunk. And the only time I have not been able to get up out of bed was that next morning on the July 1st, or January 1st. And my husband said, I said, you're going to have to bring me something to, to, to bed. I can't get out. And I had never had him ever bring alcohol to bed to me. So typically non-alcoholic, he went out and bought a bottle of old ram's head rye. I think he left the ram in it. I swear to God they must have. <laughs> and so I took several drinks to get up out of bed that morning. And this was going to be my last drinking. Little did I know that I was a full-blown alcoholic and that I would suffer hallucinations and blackouts that were to terrorize me. The month of January was the worst time I've ever gone through. I had hallucinations. I would see people with their eyes up like this looking in my window. I'd pull the window shades and chase down, take a drink, pull them back up. I was the tardest drunk that got to AA. That takes a lot of moving. I saw foam come through the hardwood floors. I had blackouts that I didn't even know. I used to think that I was just thinking pretty heavy for about four hours. <laughs> On February the 8th, 1950, I was to call North Hollywood AA Clubhouse, and I don't remember ever calling it. I heard a speaker here today who called out and said, my God, help me. And you know, our God is so wonderful. He doesn't really t need our feelings to perform miracles. We can cry out in bargaining and begging and not even believing. But I think once we cry, God, help me, that he has to hear. Because I came out of a blackout and a couple of hours had gone by. The bottle was gone. I was afraid my kids would find me drunk and I screamed, my God, help me. And my next thought was North Hollywood AA Clubhouse. And I don't remember ever dialing it or calling, I don't know. And the woman said to me, um, I said to her, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? And she said, is it for you or your husband? I says, my husband, of course. <laughs> and then I started to blubber and cry, as only an alcoholic can blubber and cry. And she said, don't kid me, it's for you, isn't it? And I said, yes. And she said, I'll be right out. I said, you can't come out. I don't want my husband to know I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> she said she thought she had an alcoholic and a ding-a-ling at the same time on that phone. <laughs> She said some wonderful words. She said, I'll tell you what I'll do, baby. I'll come out in the morning on one condition that you're not drinking. I want to talk to you and not a bottle. If you're drinking, I'll leave. Well, I had long before taken four and five straight shots down, vomited them up to a woman stay down. I get my kids off to school and do my work. 
And I guess I must have wanted this more than I thought because I walk and sweat and shook and died. And she got there about 8.30 in the morning. And she told me I had a disease. And I thought, man, have they got a cop out. How can you get mad at somebody because they're sick? But she did tell me about the program and I was so lonely. I'm an extrovert by nature. Of course, you didn't know that unless I told you. I'd become totally introverted. I was afraid to even go out to the trash. One time I went out to the trash and I was, this woman came out from her apartment and I invited her to dinner that night and I didn't know I had. So she, she and her husband came to the door that night and knocked on the door and I went there and I said, yes. She said, well, we're here for dinner. And I said, oh, you made a mistake. It's tomorrow night. Well, I had to stay reasonably sober that next day and cook and by God, I wasn't let that happen to me again. So I never went outside. Oh, it was terrible. So she came and she explained it to me and she told me about it and she says, you got to go to a meeting and I said, I can't go. I, I've got to find some way to lie to my husband because I don't want him to know. And she said, another very prophetic word, she said, honey, this is a program of rigorous honesty and if you start to lie, you'll never make it. So I said, well, let me handle him tonight and I'll go tomorrow night. And she said, fine. So Al came home and of course, I'm not dramatic. Now you understand that, don't you? And I said, I got something I want to tell you. And I made him sit in a chair with his back to me. And I said, um, I'm an alcoholic and I called AA. And his shoulders started to go like that. And I said, oh, please, God, don't laugh at me. And he turned around, looked up at me with these tears coming out of his eyes. And he said, thank God, I had the papers for Camarillo State Hospital ready to sign. I often think about that. I think I would have, I'd have gone over the brink had they ever locked me up. Because I never thought I was an alcoholic. I knew I was insane. And he, I hid the alcohol so well. And the worst thing is, I used to mask my breath by chewing coffee grounds and parsley, all that stuff. He's got the worst sense of smell of anybody in the whole world. He never would have smelled it anyhow. Isn't that awful? <laughs> so anyhow, I told him about it and he was very pleased. And when the kids came home from school, I said, I'm gonna have a big surprise from you one week from today. I don't know if I thought they were gonna give me a shot or wave a magic wand, but one week from today, it'd be all over. I remember later when they asked me a couple weeks later, what was that big surprise? And I said, I'm not going to drink anymore. And they said, oh, that. You know? <laughs> Anyhow, that next night, I was to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I would drive myself. I went over. And I don't know how many of you have been. A lot of you people have been from North Hollywood. It was an old Episcopal church. And so when I got down the sidewalk and walked in, uh, I expect to see people with swelled bellies like my sister and swelled faces and dirty blue jeans and maternity jackets and, and, you know, like I thought alcoholics looked. And I saw people just like you. And I thought, oh, damn, it's a church meeting and I've got the wrong night. So I started to walk away and a woman came to the door and she said, honey, can I help you? And I said, I don't think so. And she said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, come back. You are so welcome. Gives me a lump in my throat tonight, today. And I went back, and she put her arms around me. I started to cry. She put her arms around me, and she kind of rocked me, and she petted me, and she said, it's going to be all right, baby. It's going to be all right. Now, those are prophetic words. It was to take a little while. But, oh, it's all right. And I went in there, and I saw the birthday cake celebration that night. Now, I had sat in an audience. My older sister was a radio singer, junior champion skier, and a model. And I sat in an audience and watched her on the stage getting roses for singing, cups for skiing, modeling, and I'm sitting there watching these people up there, and they had corsages on, they're getting their birthday cakes, and my sick little mind said, geez, all you got to do is not drink for a year. You'll be up there on the stage getting your cake, and they'll be down there looking at you, and you'll have your night on the stage. Now, something happened that night that is sad, 
the speaker, and I had to pray hard to forgive him, gave 55 minutes of the most horrendous drunkalogue I have ever heard. Fifths a day, sanitariums, jails, 502s, 86s, Jesus, I heard more numbers than I ever heard before in my life. Didn't even know what he was talking about. And so I'm sitting there saying, uh, I knew it. I knew it was an alcoholic. I didn't drink that much. I didn't drink that long. I didn't do those things. Well, maybe I'm only a little alcoholic. You can't be a little pregnant. Did you know that? And so I fell in a trap of trying to identify with a drinking pattern. And, oh, loved ones, if there's newcomers here, don't try to identify with my drinking pattern because you never will. You probably spilled more than I drank. But it's not how much you drink. It's not how long you drink. It's not what brand. It's not how old you are. Where you've been that constitutes alcoholism. And I tried to identify with that drinking pattern, and I couldn't. And I broke two rules that night. I didn't know there were rules. But the two rules I broke was this. Your life must become an open book to one other human being. Now, don't be compulsive confessors and get up and tell everybody about yourself because you get sober and you wish the hell you hadn't, you know? <laughs> but your life becomes an open book to one other human being. Secrets will kill you. And I didn't let my life become an open book. I was absolutely scared to death that if I told that lady that was to be my sponsor that I didn't think I was an alcoholic, you wouldn't let me come here anymore. And let me tell you, when I hit the doors of North Hollywood, that woman gave me a gift that is so rare that we very seldom see it, except in AA. It's called agape love. That's spelled A-G-A-P-E. That's God's kind of love, unconditional. We don't care where you've been, what you've done, how old you are, what color you are. If you are an alcoholic and want help, oh my God. I think sometimes we care too much. But that is agape love, and you won't find it in churches, I'm sorry to say, or any place that I know, except within the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why we're the only thing that's successful for the drunk. We are the only thing that's successful for the compulsive overeater, or the emotionally disturbed, or the narcotic addict. Because we know that we know that we know what's going on inside of you. And so anyhow, with that birthday cake celebration and the whole thing, and back in 1950, it was like a men's stag group, very few women, and they found out I had this gift of gab. Now, you didn't know that if I hadn't told you that either, did you? <laughs> they put me on the circuit when I was 49 days dry. I spoke from Bakersfield to San Diego and from Santa Barbara to Riverside, any place in between. I went to 365 meetings that first year, more, because I went to Sunday noon lunches, Monday noon brunches. I had babies stacked behind me like cordwood. People started telling me how wonderful I was, and I agreed with them. <laughs> they started quoting me and misquoting me. Now, I had a total recall memory at one time. Booze took care of that, but I have a, quite a photographic memory. And my sponsor was a book woman, and she would quote the book, and people would just look at her. So she'd quote the book, and I'd run home and memorize it and come back and quote the book. Now, I didn't work the steps because I'm not sick dingling like you guys, you understand? And besides, I'm a great teacher. And you're telling me how wonderful I am, and I'm agreeing. And so I just thought, well, I finally found my niche. I'm not an alcoholic, but if I don't tell you, that'll be all right, and I'll just help you get well. You lucky people. <laughs> Never took an inventory. See, I thought alcohol was my problem. And a lot of you sitting here today think alcohol is your problem. Loved ones, alcohol is not your problem. Alcohol is a sick answer you found to your problem. We belong to the cult of the comfortable. 
we damn near kill ourselves trying to get comfortable. But see, thank God, because if I came to AA through the doors and they said, put the cork in the bottle and everything will be fine and send me out to my family or out on the street, and I'll tell you, you're not doing me any favors. You're condemning me to hell because I can't stand to live dry. I've got to have something else. Don't just take alcohol away from me and leave me with nothing else because I can't stand pain. Oh, I can stand physical pain. I've worked in the pharmacy with a broken toe. I've had uh, a lot of other things happen to me, and I don't like it, but I can take it. But my God, don't give me five minutes of unadulterated emotional pain without some help or I'll go to the top of my head. I can't stand emotional pain. None of you understand that, of course, <laughs> what I'm talking about. So, a year went by on the wings. On February the 8th, 1951, I stood at the podium at North Hollywood, and I had a corsage took out off that big. My two kids and my husband sat in the front row. People patted me on the back and told me how great I was. Again, I agreed. They gave me more presents than I'd ever gotten any needle birthday, and I guess I thought I graduated. I thought I made it. Now, during that whole year, I would have told you I was happy. Happier than I've ever been before in my life. But I didn't even know the meaning of the word happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of right living. I was in a perpetual state of excitement. The A book says we're used to three things, excitement, anxiety, and depression. Peace of mind and a quiet heart, we don't know anything about. And that's a fact. And so as this adrenaline starts to leave, and I'm tired, I was working. I went to work three months after I was sober. I worked 40 hours a week, took care of two kids and a husband and an apartment, and was out practically every night. You gotta know I had something going for me. And when the adrenaline started to leave, I'm tired. And I thought, well, I'm an old timer now. About a year, I'll sit back and let the newcomer take over. Did a lot of crazy things that first year. After that year, I was asked to speak in Azusa one night, and it was a driving rainstorm. The windshield wiper wouldn't take the rain away. And I got there, it was a place about this big, and there were six old people sitting there. And I thought, gee, they arrived late at this meeting. The meeting started, and there were still six old people sitting there. And I'm thinking, how dare they ask the great Dottie Shore to come to speak to six old people? So from then on, when they asked me to come, I'd screen the group. I asked them how big the group was. It was a big group. I went. It was a small group. I sent one of my babies. You know, I can't be bothered with that small time stuff. I did the worst thing I think an alcoholic can do, and that's turn down 12-step calls. God forgive me. I never let them go, but I let my babies do it. You know, I'm an old-timer. I can't be bothered with that new drunk. I look back on those days, and I think, what was I thinking of? And the answer comes back, you weren't thinking at all, dummy. That's what's the problem. And I didn't know what was happening. And my foundation was very low, and I thought booze was my problem. I had no problem staying away from drug, uh, alcohol. And had I taken an inventory, I would have found out that one of my deep-seated problems, my big defect of character, is a hopeless neurotic need for attention. Now, we all have it, but mine was totally out of proportion. I know now that I became a pathological liar. I was an exaggerator. I was a clown. I was a buffoon. I'd mispronounce words. I'd fall down. I'd do anything that I had to do in order to get your attention. Now, as long as you had patted me on the back and told me how great I was, I could have stayed with you a long time, dry and sick. But when it stopped, my neuroses kicked into gail again, and I had to do something to get your attention. Now, I'd go on Tuesday night, and I hadn't been there since the following Tuesday night, and nobody rushed to the door and said, where were you? The phone isn't ringing. I think, the hell with them. I won't call them either. I get damn lonesome that way. 
I called my sponsor. She wouldn't give me two hours of undivided attention on the phone anymore. She's working with newcomers, and I'm mad at her. She said to me, you better do something about your resentments. I said, I don't have resentments. I have justifiable anger. <laughs> well, I went to a meeting on June the 10th, 1951, and the leader was leading. It was a beginner's meeting, and he said, how many new people in the room? About 15 people raised their hand. You know what he had the nerve to say? He said, you are the most important people in the room. What like hell they are. Old-timer like me, you lose now. You haven't lost any, you lose those newcomers, but now an old-timer. And I was angry. And I loved the meeting before, and I loved the meeting after, but I split. And on the way home, I'm crying, and my sick little mind says, I know what I'd do. I'll get drunk, and I'll punish them. And then they're going to be sorry. And I used to get drunk at poor Al all the time. I'm not going to bother with him. I'd pick the whole North Hollywood group. I see Al coming home in my mind. He finds me drinking. He goes to the phone, he calls North Hollywood, and he's saying, my God, Dottie's drunk. And they're saying, oh, no. And they get in a caravan of cars and come over and 12-step me. <laughs> <laughs> they make amends and I forgive them. <laughs> and we kiss and make up, and they put me in the car and take me to North Hollywood, and I'm a newcomer again. Oh, joy. Well, you know it didn't happen that way, don't you? On June the 11th, 1951, I got up that morning, I cleaned my house, I was going to have him call me slob, you understand? I put on my earrings and my makeup, and I put on clean underwear in case something happened, you know? How about you gals? Didn't your mother always tell you to have clean underwear on in case something happened? All right. And I didn't drive, because I knew what blackouts were, see? And I didn't want to get in any trouble. I didn't want to get very drunk. I didn't want to get in any trouble. I just wanted to scare the hell out of the people at North Hollywood. So I walked to the liquor store and I got the same old half pint and I come tootling home. Now remember who you're talking to. 16 months and three days circuit speaker. Are you impressed? <laughs> I was so damn impressed it almost killed me. And I know now today what I got drunk on that day was ego. E-G-O. Edging God out. You can get drunk faster on ego, honey, than you can anything else. And we have to be careful because we're egocentric with inferiority complexes. Now, for a few minutes, I'm going to feel like I am the best speaker in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And five minutes from now, I think, God, I didn't say anything I wanted to say. And the old pendulum will go up and down. I'm fine one minute and bad the next. You'd know what I'm talking about. You'd do the same thing. Well, let me tell you something now. If you guys ever decide to drink again, and you know how we hide bottles, and you lose one, just call an Al-Anon member to come in. They're like ferrets. They can find a bottle that nobody else can find. I happen to be a member of Al-Anon, so I, I, I'm, not, I'm just having fun with them. They know that. Anyhow, about two and a half years before I got to AA, my husband would find the bottle. He'd pour it down the sink, hold me at arm's length. And if I had a knife, I'd have killed him. I'd have stuck it right in his throat. Because now I have to get up in the morning, get those kids off to school, get him out of there, pick up the nickels and dimes, get to the liquor store to buy the drink. And I told you, I was taking three or four shots down, whoop, they'd come before I went stay. So I had to find a place to hide my supply. I'm looking and looking and looking. And one day, I look up in the cupboard and I see the vinegar bottle. Did you know vinegar and bourbon are the same color? So I'm not a fancy drunk. I didn't drink out of a cocktail glass. I drank out of a vinegar bottle for two and a half years. I poured the vinegar out of the 
vinegar bottle, put the whiskey in the vinegar bottle, and I put it right up in the front of the cupboard. And Al would come home and find me a little drunk, right? He'd go out there and he'd move that bottle back and forth. He'd look all <laughs> Never found my supply. But now it's going to be different. I'm not going to hide the bottle. I don't give a damn who knows I'm drinking, right? Wrong. I went home, took the vinegar out of the cupboard, poured it down the sink, put my whiskey in the vinegar bottle, took my first drink out of the vinegar bottle. Sixteen months and three days, circus speaker. You want to know about AA? Just ask me. If you don't, I'll tell you about it anyhow. Head knowledge alone is not enough. There's nothing about this program I don't know. There was nothing about the program at that time I didn't know. When that whiskey burned my throat, so help me God, if someone had slapped me like that and wakened me out of a sleepwalk, it couldn't have been more violent. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? There goes 16 months of sobriety shot to hell. And that was the first realization I had, loved ones, that I had taken that drink. I was mentally drunk long before I took the drink. When you reach for the drink, you're drunk up here a long time before you ever reach for that. And when that whiskey burned my throat, see, I loved you people so much. I love you today so much. And the one thing I loved the most, I had once again thrown away. And I stood there terrorized, waiting for something to happen. And I waited. And I waited. And nothing happened. And I thought, oh, hell, I knew all along I wasn't like those drunks over at North Hollywood. And I walked out in the kitchen to get what I thought was going to be my second drink. And I remember nothing from this time on. What I tell you now, loved ones, is told to me by my husband and my sponsor. Al was an outside salesman. We'd had a particularly bad fight the night before. There was no al on, But he knew my personality had changed. He said I was saying things like, I might as well be drunk as the way I am. Those SVs don't appreciate me. And I was talking like I did before I called AA. And he was nervous and upset, so he came home. Thank God. He heard me screaming a half a block before he got to the house. I'd never had this before. Remember, this is a progressive disease. I didn't pick up where I left off. I picked up as if I had been drinking heavily for 16 months. When he came in the, front, in the house, I was on the front room floor beating my heels to almost broke the bones in my feet. I had screamed and, and retched and vomited till I broke a blood vessel into my esophagus. And I'm vomiting blood. It's coming out my nose. I had retched till I broke the blood vessels in my eyes. My eyeballs hemorrhaged. And when he tried to get me up off the floor and put me on the couch, I went totally limp. I remember, loved ones, back in 1951, there was no care unit, no hospitalization. They wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole. During that first year, a girl and I took another one to the hospital on the verge of the DTs, and they told me to get that lousy drunk out of their waiting room. Oh, are we blessed today to know that we have a disease that is hereditary, that is passed on in the genes, that we are not bad people who drink too much. We drink too much and do bad things. What a difference. So at any rate... He was so startled and so upset, he remembered that two blocks from where we lived was a medical center. And there were seven doors along a sidewalk of medical suites. And he ran up there and came to the first door available. Now, the office was full of people. He went past the, the people into to the receptionist, and she was busy. And he went past her into the doctor's examining room. Now, you got to know how terrorized he was. And here's a guy laying on the table being examined, and Al was barging in there. The doctor told me later he'd never seen anyone as terrorized as Al was. And he grabbed the doctor and he said, my wife's been sober 16 months, she's drinking and she's dying. For God's sake, come with me. And the first of many miracles was to set forth for Dottie Shore. Because he didn't say, get the rescue squad. Oh my God, another drunk. Or do you have hospitalization? Fill out this form. You know what they do. 
He just picked up his black medical bag, left an office full of people, and ran the two blocks to my home. And do you know why? He was an alcoholic. My God. My God. Isn't that odd? That's God. Isn't that a coincidence? That's a complicated way of spelling God, isn't it? When he got to the house, he put the stethoscope on my chest. He turned to my husband and he said, Mr. Shaw, we're too late. There's no heartbeat, no pulse, no respiration. So loved ones, on June 11th, 1951, 36 years ago, next month, I died of a killer terminal, filthy, rotten, stinking, cunning, baffling, powerful disease called alcoholism. And the only reason I'm here today is by the grace of God. Now, we use that word very lightly, but for the grace of God. You know what it literally means? It's a free, unearned, unmerited, unwarranted gift. No human power can relieve your alcoholism. God can and will if sought. And if you are here with one day, five days like Robbie, or one hour, you have the grace of God on you. A free, unearned, unmerited, unwarranted gift. And you can either put it on you like a cold, warm coat on a cold night, or you can go and knock it off. But we who are here today, we, whether we're alcoholic or non-alcoholic, are the most blessed people in the whole world. And when Jim said last night, we are chosen, oh, I want to stand up and say amen. I agree. Many are called, few are chosen. Why do you think you're sitting here and people you know die? Why me, I used to say, why me? Why am I an alcoholic? Now I think, why me? How come I'm here? How come I'm sober? Why me? It's because God had something he wanted me to do. I was chosen. Not because I was worth it. Not because I earned it. But in his wisdom, he knew that he knew that I would do what he told me to do once I became surrendered. Well, the doctor said when Al got hysterical, the doctor took a needle about that long out of his bag and he shot me directly in his chest cavity and gave me artificial resuscitation. And by the grace of God, my heart started beating. Let's take it back. Suppose Al had been one minute late and the doctor had waited two minutes. They could have brought my heart back, but my brain would have been damaged. When I went to the doctor a couple days later, oh, the next night, that night, I was sedated all night long. This blood vessel in the esophagus was ruptured and it kept bleeding. The next morning when I woke up, at the foot of my bed I had a vanity with a great big mirror. And I sat up, and you know, all of us women are, van are vain. Now you guys are vain too, but I'm just talking for you women. And I like to look good. And I sat up in that bed that morning and looked in that mirror. And I saw a monster. My face was swelled. My lips were puffed out like this. I had no whites for eyes. And you know how much I had to drink that morning? Are you ready? Three lousy shots of whiskey. Is it how much you drink? Is it how long you drink? Is it what brand? Is it with whom? Let me tell you something, loved ones. Everybody in this room has got another drunk in them. But some of you don't have sobering up time left. I think when you come to AA, they give you some visible pieces of paper. One, ten, fifteen, I don't know who you got. It's called sobering up time. I punched my last one. I had one. For me to drink is to die. Thank God I know that. I've got another drunk in me. But I have no sobering up time left. And the last thing I ever want to do is die drunk. For God's sake, what a legacy to leave for your family. And that's going to happen to us. 
And so the thing that is so amazing to me is that I'm even here. Now, when I went back to the doctor a couple days later, he took me by the shoulders and he shook me and he said, I want you to hear me, girl. See how long ago it was he called me girl. <laughs> he said, you were as dead as anybody I've ever examined and the only reason you're here is by that shot I gave you. And I thought, oh, now I thought I should have told him then, but I didn't know it. It wasn't your shot, it was God. But at any rate, um, he said, if you drink again, you'll die. And the first thought that went through my mind is, why didn't he let me go? Jesus, I had my out. I don't know about you people, but I don't like it out there in the world. Do you like it out there? I damn near killed myself trying to be like those, uh, those people out there. <laughs> but you know, I don't, I don't like it out there. And, and I, uh, I've always been a Pollyanna. Let's kiss and make up and live happy ever after. And so uh, I, I had my out. You know, not too long ago, I was in um, Des Moines, Iowa. And I had to turn the news on, waiting to go to a meeting. And um, they told about a man whose little boy was seven years old and he kept wetting the bed. And this man amputated his penis and threw it down the toilet because he wet the bed. Don't you love those kind of things? Don't you just think that's a wonderful world out there? That's what I didn't want. And I thought when he told me I was dead as anybody's ever examined, why didn't he let me go? But thank God on top of that came this thought. There has to be something God wants me to do. And about June the 13th, 1951, I made a commitment that sounded something like this. I said, okay, I don't understand how it's your will that I am here, but I promise you I will never be too tired nor too busy to answer a call for anyone. Just please use me all the days of my life till I'm all used up for your glory. Be careful to pray that prayer because you're going to be moving. <laughs> I mean moving. There's very few states now that I haven't spoken in, and I think, my God, what? old dumb Dottie who couldn't drive, couldn't hold on a job, puts the cork in the bottle and lets God have his way and this happens. It can happen to me, it'll happen to you. It's up to you. Well, I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous and it was harder to go back than it ever was to go. Here I am, the circuit speaker. Big shot. I told my husband, don't you tell anybody I got drunk or I'll kill you. I was going to bluff it out. I got to the doors of North Hollywood and I had a sign on me that said slip going on and off like a <laughs> And I started to cry and they, I had so many people say, oh, Dottie, thank God you're back and you were so solid. What was wrong? Tell us so it won't happen to us. And one old timer, don't you love him, standing over there saying, hey, sure, what the hell step were you took and when taken when you took that drink? Oh, I hated his guts that night. But he gave me the clue. What in the hell step had I ever taken? I had taught them, preached them, read them, recited them, done everything with them but work them. Now, have I decided, I had taken that inventory and found out my deeper-seated problem, one of them, was an erotic need for attention. The only reason I got drunk was to get these people's attention. Now, supposing I'd have gotten out of that caper and they came home over and 12-stepped me and kissed me and took me back, the very next time I got unhappy, I'd have done the same thing over again. God has wondrous ways to perform miracles. So I went back. Taught and trained by a Roman Catholic priest who was a practicing alcoholic. And the poor man died drunk. He died long before AA came in. But he terrorized me. He told me every time I committed a sin, I was nailing another nail in Jesus' hand. 
And he told me once that when I really did something bad, that if I would look at the Virgin statue, uh, Mary statue, I would see her cry. And I looked at it one day, and I swear to God, I saw a tear come out of her eye. And I was terrorized. Now, he also taught me to say, thee and thou, had to hold your hands just a certain way, put your nose on the third finger. And he had a prayer book, and he would hit that prayer book with a rubber band, and we'd all have to kneel. If you didn't, you got hit on the head. Then he'd hit the rubber band again, and you all stood up. And he was terrorized. I look back on him now, and my heart aches for him, but he terrorized me. Now, when I was 16 years old, I ran away and got married. I had a baby sister nine years younger. I had this one two years older, and I was lost in there. And my little head says, if I run away and get married and have my own home, I'll get out of this bad situation. So I picked a boy 17 who didn't have a job. Ooh, very smart. Very smart. So he ended up living with my mother. <laughs> Tried to get away from her. Two months later, I'm pregnant for my oldest daughter, and he wanted me to have an abortion, and I was terrorized horrified and I made the first of many decisions that I was going to have that baby it was going to be my husband's my mother's or my sister's I thought immaculate had come back it's going to be all mine and I'll tell you truly for those nine months was the night the best part of my life up to that point I felt important I felt wonderful that I was having this baby now he never wanted it he never participated in anything with me and she was born and she wasn't an hour old that I was praying she'd grow up and get the hell out of my hair I was scared to death of her and he wouldn't hold her said she was more like a sister than a, than a daughter, and of course the marriage was, not, was doomed to failure. So I didn't go home to mother, I was already there, I just kicked him out. And one day, shortly after this time, the baby wasn't even a year old, I was walking her in the buggy, and the priest was walking up and down, reading his office, and he comes over and he said, when are you going to have that kid baptized? And I said, not until I get married again. Did you know you don't tell a Catholic priest that? I thought I'd clue you in. You <laughs> He said, you can't get married again. If you do, you'll be living in adultery and any child that issue will be illegitimate. And I pulled myself up of my self-willed and I said, I'm going to get married again. And he said, you are excommunicated. Well, darlings, if God had called me on the phone and said, Dottie, this is God, you're excommunicated. Couldn't have been more, more official. My mother never investigated. I sure didn't. And for 19 long years, I wandered the face of this earth like a lost soul. My daughter, Al and I got married. We had Sandy. Sandy was sick. They told me she'd never live to grow up. And every time she got sick, God was going to kill her and punish me. I went to 1,500 funerals in my own mind. i go down to the morgue and pick out a little pink casket and little gold shoes. Go through the funeral, go home and close the door and let the cobwebs and the dust collect in her room. I milked this neurotic, morbid imagination till it almost destroyed me. And I do believe that alcohol at that time became my friend. Because I believe had I continued like that, I'd have gone straight to the top of my head. And so alcohol was a friend for a while, but as with most false friends, it turned on me and almost kicked the hell out of me. But this was terrible. And so I never, I never had any, I didn't pray. When Sandy was so sick and her temperature would go so high, and remember, no antibiotics, no antihistamines, we'd have to wait for her temperature got high enough to kill this bronchitis that she had. And every time she got sick, she was going to die. And every time it was, he's going to do that. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because when I came to the third step, and you dare, the people I love the most in the world dare to tell me to turn my life and my will over to that thing up there, you've got to be kidding me. You know what I do if I turn my life over to him? He's going to pull that lever and right down to hell he's going to put me. And so I went to my sponsor and I said, I can't work the third step. If I don't work it, I'll get drunk. She said, honey, why can't you work the third step? And I said, because I'm afraid of God. She said, well, tell me about him. I started to tell her, she said, oh, shut up, let's run, I'm afraid of him too.
So she said, honey, you're going to have to find a new God. You know God's not lost. So I went the only place I've ever known to go for answers, and that was to you people. I went over to North Hollywood. I remember I used to have to say thee and thou and pray so and forth. I went over and I said to the first person, I believe in God. He said, you mean the old pal Joe? I thought, oh, I hope he didn't hear that. My God, that's blasphemy. I said, how do you believe in God? You mean the old HP? Oh, God, that's terrible. Really, he's really going to get us. Somebody said, uh, the old man upstairs? And I thought, that does it. That does it. He's going to really pull that lever. And again, one wonderful soul picked by God said, Dottie, get over here. Do you really want to find God? I said, I got to. He said, no, honey. The only thing you've got to do is die and pay taxes. You don't have to do anything. He says, if you'll do what I tell you to do, will you promise? And I said, I'll do anything. He said, all right, for one week, I want you to pray this prayer. You say, God, reveal yourself to me as you really are. Know the prayer and start looking. Without exaggeration, loved ones, I prayed it a hundred times a day. And in less than a week, he got off that silly cloud, threw away those books, took off that white outfit, and came down and became my daddy God. Now, the first night I went to a meeting after praying this prayer, a guy got up and he said, if you're having trouble finding God, take the word good and take one O out of it. Anything that's good is God. And I said, if you go outside tomorrow morning and the sun's out there, you're not surprised. You don't say, gee, the sun's cold this morning. Can't be. By its very nature, the sun is a hot thing. God, by his very nature, can't be good and bad, punishing and rewarding. By his very nature, he's all good. Hell, I never heard that before. So I continue on praying, God, reveal yourself to me as you really are. While I was walking in the house one day, praying this prayer, out of my memory bank popped a thought I hadn't thought about since I was a 9, 10, 11 years old. I was raised next door to a girl whose mother died when she was born, and her grandparents were raising her. And I was over there more than I was home. And she called her grandfather Daddy Dick and her grandmother Grandma Joe. And when I'd be over there playing, Daddy Dick would grab me every now and then, put me on his lap, lay my head on his shoulder, and he'd whisper, and he'd say, You know, Dottie, if you ever need anything, just ask Daddy Dick. Now, they knew that I was neglected at home, and they were loving people. He wasn't a successful man, and I hadn't thought about him in a hundred years. But during this week, I thought, every time I asked that old man to do anything for me, he did it. He used to fix my roller skates. He went to the, to the dumps one day and got a uh, doll buggy and refurnished it and gave it to me. He filled a need that I had never had from my family. And I thought, maybe I could climb up in the lap of Daddy God. I'd lay my head on his shoulder and he'd say, you know, Dottie, if you ever need anything, just ask Daddy God. Well, even so, I thought, oh, this is so familiar. Oh, this is, this is really pushing it. You know, it borders on blasphemy to talk to God about Daddy God. On the seventh day, when I, my sponsor used to say, open the A book and read. Open the Bible and read. If you're upset, just start reading something. Well, this was a spiritual question. So I opened the Bible, put my finger down, and glory to God, these are the words that popped off that page. You are human parents full of sin. If your children ask you for a piece of bread, would you give them a stone? They ask you for a fish, would you give them a serpent? How much more will your heavenly Father, there was the words, grant to those who believe in him? And all of a sudden, it became all right. And that night I went to a meeting, and I've said the Lord's Prayer since I was able to speak. But I usually say it this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom come, kingdom come, heaven. This is our daily bread. You know how to do that, don't you? Don't you have to be taught how to do that, do you? And I said the Lord's Prayer in AA meetings for the 16 months, and I don't know how many months has gone by now. And uh, I never thought what I was saying. It was just, let's get this thing over so I can go and have coffee with the people and get into the social part, you know. And this night, on the seventh night, 
and I held hands, and we all said, Our Father. If someone had put their fingers in my ears and blocked it, I never heard another word. And I thought, my God, you said, Our Father. You didn't say my father. You didn't say your father. You said our father. And I knew why I loved you. Because you're my brothers and sisters. And he's our father. And as long as we try to do this the best we can, certainly not perfect, we will have everything that we've ever dreamed or prayed about in our wildest drunken dreams. Because from that time on, my life turned 180 degrees. Now, I won't tell you that I got sober and I sailed off in the sunset and everything's been wonderful, that I'm more beautiful, although I am, that I'm younger, richer, that everything has changed. And I've had a lot of unhappiness, a tremendous amount of unhappiness, and a tremendous amount of joy. And if you ever read the, uh, the prophets, you'll know that the hole is dug out with your joy is filled with your grief, and the hole is dug out with your grief is how much happiness you can receive. And I've had a lot of unhappiness. My oldest sister died, 39 years old, blew apart as a result of alcoholic hemorrhages. I had to go home to Reno to a drunken Irish wake. My mother got so drunk she fell off the chair and my sister's dead with her head swelled the size of both shoulders. This was not the talented, beautiful radio singer. This was a sick, destroyed alcoholic. And I learned how to say the serenity prayer of that time if I ever learned it in my life. God, grant me the serenity to accept that I can't change. And I made it through. But when they had the, after the wake, after the, the funeral, they passed the whiskey around and I turned it down and they called me a hypocrite. And yet I knew that you people were praying for me. And I got out of it and I came home. And a few, few years later, my oldest daughter became a full-blown addict alcoholic. And she's smashing her life away. I had to take my grandson from her. And he's sucking his thumb, he's wet in the bed. His heels were flitting bleeding. His toenails had grown to the top of his toes. Every hair follicle on his leg is full of pus pimples because he's so dirty and it's not because I'm putting her down this is what happens with alcoholic addicts and my sponsor and my people in AA said you're contributing to the delinquency of that minor child you've got to take him one of my kids had grown and I didn't know what to do but the little boy kept begging me please call me Nana please Nana don't send me back please don't send me back and so I made the decision which was the hardest I've ever done to get the guardianship of this baby I had to kidnap him because if she found me, she would have had me arrested for kidnapping. And I'll never forget Mary Poppins if I lived to be a thousand years old. I sat through four showings of Mary Poppins at the Grumman's Chinese Theater. And I'm crying and my grandson says, this is a happy film. Why are you crying, Nana? And so we got the guardianship papers signed on the Monday. And the process server told me that when he gave her the papers, presented her with the papers, she was so stoned, she couldn't write her own name. And he helped her sign her name. And he went out and sat in the car and he watched her leave the apartment, walk down the sidewalk, and walk away and leave everything. Her personal belongings, furniture, clothes, everything, and disappeared off the face of this earth. Good reason to get drunk, isn't it? Why, sure. Daughter's disappeared. You took her kids. All your fault? I knew that I knew that if I couldn't handle it sober, I couldn't handle it drunk. And I spoon-fed my grandson a little bit to this program. And he starts to get well. And I told him, you know, he'd come home late from school and he'd give me this big story about how kids had caught him and knocked him off the bicycle and he'd beat them up and all. And I thought, oh, Jesus, we've got another pathological liar coming down. <laughs> so I told him about pathological lying and I said, you know, all these stories are wonderful and you tell me, but be sure and tell me that it's a story. 
So he was been in school, I guess, about six weeks, and I went over to the teacher, and I said, how's he doing? And she said, well, Mrs. Shore, your grandson did something that's never happened before. And I thought, God, he must have raped somebody in the restroom. Scared me to death. She said, we had a talk on Washington, D.C., and he raised his hand, and he told about how you took him to the White House, and you walked in the Rose Garden with the president. And he went on and told this great big story, and she said, uh, he really took me in. And so she said, uh, recess time came. And usually he would run right out to recess. But she said, this time I relay, he kind of fooled around the desk. And she said, afterward, he came up and he said, Mrs. Burton. She said, Jess, you know that story I told you about Washington, D.C.? And she said, Jess, he said, well, I'm a pathological liar, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that gorgeous? And things, things start to go great. But about six months after she disappeared, and I'm working, I'm going to Al-Anon, thank God for Al-Anon. They saved my sanity. Now, AA tried to help me, but they say, kick the, the bitch out. That's, re, that's reject. AA said, release her with love. And the greatest thing you'll ever learn, AA, is to get that pamphlet on detachment. My God, it saved my life a hundred times over. But anyway, I went to them, and I thought I was doing pretty good. But I was waking up about two o'clock in the morning with a smothering sensation, like I had a pillow over my face. And I'd wake up like that, and I think, my God, something's wrong with my heart or my lungs. So I went to the doctor. He said, Dottie, there's nothing wrong. It's emotional. You better get to a psychiatrist. Well, I've had no problem with psychiatry because I know that I suffer from grave emotional disorders. But I was unhappy because that the program hadn't worked. And so I leave him, and I thought, okay. And on the way home, I'm crying. And I was working with a girl whose husband was an Episcopal priest, and he was in Al-Anon. And inadvertently, which is a complicated way of spelling God, I find myself on the way over to his house, and I said, Father Ken, what's the matter with me? He said, it's obvious you're in a panic. What are you afraid of? I said, I'm afraid I won't see Anne alive again. He said, you have to accept it. You may never see her alive again, and I just screamed in agony, but I can't. He said, then go on fighting. And our book says we cease to fight everything and everybody, including alcohol. Only fight I ever give was alcohol. I went home, got down on my knees, and said something along these lines. All right, Lord, I don't understand. How can be your will? that Anne has to die. But if she has to die, I surrender her to you even unto death. Just give me the strength to go through it. And loved ones, it was like a load went off my shoulders. I went to bed that night, slept all night for the first time, got up the next day and was about my business and the phone rang at noon. It was my daughter. Isn't that odd? People say, isn't that odd? That's God. Now she didn't get well right away. But I had her son and I couldn't help her. Oh gee, if you've got alcoholics in your family, don't try and help them. Oh, God, don't break your heart. Because see, it's Mama talking. I'd, I'd worked with 15,000 people by this time. I'm, what, uh, 15 years sober. And everything I said was wrong. But one person, who didn't have half the program I've got, came along, <laughs> said the magic word, and she's been sober ever since, you see. So she came to me, after she'd been sober quite a while, to make amends. And I said, Ann, there's no reason for make amends. The fact that you're alive. I said, I already lost you unto death. So what are you talking about? So I told her about this little ex thing. And she said, my God, when was that? And I told her, and she said, Mother, do you know what I was doing that day? And I said, I have no idea. Well, she was going into Tijuana, Mexico, across San Diego into Tijuana, Mexico. And at that time, you could pick up a thousand of any of her drugs you wanted. And so uh, the last time she went through, the Hells Angels had been picked up going across the border. I guess I'm the only one that blesses the Hells Angels. But they had drugs in every, every pocket. So they closed the, the, the border down. And when Ann goes in the last time, the pharmacist said, I can't give you any more. You'll have to have a prescription. Well, now, it's not like going to another liquor store, you understand. She was burned out. I told you I weighed 82 pounds. I'm 5'2". She's 5'7". She weighed less than 70 pounds. 
She was more dead than alive. I remember the first time I ever saw her after that, I went to put my arms around her, and it was like hugging a board. She was hard. The skin was hard. She was, she was frozen. How she ever lived through it is, is God's mercy and his grace. So anyhow, she came back to the valley, and she lived very close to where we were. She put blankets and towels and blocked all the doors and the windows, took the last of her drugs, which is a huge overdose, turned the gas on, and laid down to die. And that afternoon, they turned the gas out for lack of payment. Isn't that odd? Isn't that odd? That's God. Now, she's got over 22 years of sobriety, thank God. Thank God. I gave my grandson back to her when he was about, uh, and she was about a year or two years sober, and in less than in six months, he's a full-blown addict alcoholic. This is a family disease. It is hereditary. It is passed on in the genes. Please don't forget that. It may skip a generation, but if you have alcoholism, you are predisposed, and the only way you'll ever escape it is just not to take that drink. And for us, that's impossible, because how many times this weekend have we heard our beloved speakers say, and then I took a drink, and then I felt comfortable. See, when we take a drink and it does for us, it doesn't do that for the, for the normsies out there. We take a drink and it does something so different that it is alcoholism. That's what alcoholism is. The speaker, Bob, first night speaker, described the feelings of the alcoholic better than anybody I've ever seen. If you weren't here, for God's sake, get the tape because I lived through things that I had forgotten. He brought back feelings and emotions in me that I used to suffer. It was almost too much for me to stand, but thank God I haven't forgotten what it's like to be like that. And that's what'll happen. For us to drink is to die. Now, my grandson is now about 14, 15 years sober on the program. My youngest grandson, wait a minute, this goes on. My youngest daughter is not an alcoholic. She gave me two grandchildren, a da granddaughter who's never smoked or drank, absolutely delightful person, a grandson who's used and drank since he was 13. And I never fell in the trap of telling these people anything. And my grandson, my youngest grandson, I would see him and I'd put my arms around him and say, praying for you, babe. And he say, I know you are, Nana. He now has six months of sobriety. <laughs> Don't despair. It took me 13 years of hammering at God before he finally got this kid. But if we have the patience to wait upon the Lord, his timing is not ours, but somehow it works. Well, since I've been sober, I've gone back to a church of my choice. I am a born-again Christian, and I read the Bible. But see, it not, would not have done it, loved ones. If I'd have come to the doors of North Hollywood that night, and the woman said, are you an alcoholic? And I'd have said yes, and she said, honey, come in and accept Jesus. I would have died. Not that Jesus couldn't do it. But you take us who are so wounded, or so starved, so misinformed and try and put religion down us and you're going to lose us but you get real smart and real sneaky and you bring me in here and you tell me to find a god of my understanding and i found a daddy god and with a daddy god he revealed to me that jesus is the savior and i'm not trying to proselyte him i'm just telling you how i believe you brought me back full cycle i thank you for that i'm now in my opinion total i'm not fragmented anymore and I also know that God is using me. The harvest is plentiful. Do you know that? The workers are very few. Very few people will get up in the middle of the night and go out and call somebody. They don't want to bother to, 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 to that's this thing. 
This lady has handled that desk down there when there should be a lot of people relieving her. Another girl had been there from 7 o'clock in the morning till 5 o'clock at night and nobody sit at that desk. And you go to a meeting and they have the coffee all made and the chairs all set up and literature out. And you don't pick up your coffee cup and you leave and you think, Gremlins did it? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few and I have been active since day one. And I will die active. The way I'd like to die is standing up here talking. It may scare you to death, but I'd like to just flip out right up here. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. I would love it. Now, I got to tell you something, because I believe in sharing experience, strength, and hope. My husband, Al, was in Al-Anon at the very beginning, 1951. He was the first intergroup chairman of Southern California. He started the central office and the Al-Announcer, and most people don't know, my husband started the Alateens. But my husband, unfortunately, worked in the business end of the program. Always very productive. He did great. He never worked the program for himself. He decided to go into partnership with an alcoholic partner, and I begged him not to. I said, please don't. The man's a practicing alcoholic. He said, oh, Dottie, anybody that drinks too much you think's an alcoholic. I said, well, it takes one to know one, you know. <laughs> so he sold our house, took our savings, and he went into business. And my husband was a brilliant man. But less than nine months, we're down the drain. We lost our house, our cars. Everything but some old furniture, lost our savings. We walked out of the bankruptcy court with $7 and an old car, and we were in our 50s. My husband never attended another Al-Anon meeting from that day till now. And you can die in many ways. And my ex-husband, I divorced him after eight years of staying with this. I loved him too long to hate him. I couldn't stay with him and watch this disintegration. He now has emphysema, and he's slowly dying. And he's never, ever attended another Al-Anon meeting. You think we're the only ones that do that, right? We're very good friends. I would have been married to him 50 years. But it's all right. I'm alone now. I'm a man's woman. I don't like to be alone, but that's the way God wants it. But I'd rather be alone than be with someone and lonely. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And I have a lot of lovely friends. I have all of you. I have my youngest daughter. And my granddaughter, who is the joy of my life, has given me two great grandsons. Now, if you love me, tell me I don't look old enough to be a great-grandmother, okay? <laughs> but just think, 35 years ago, I could have missed three grandchildren and these great-grandbabies that are so wonderful, and they just adore me. And I would not have been here, and I've never known the love of God and the love of the people. Now, three years ago, my youngest sister, nine years younger than I am, died of alcoholism. Lost two of them. My mother's died since I got sober. My daddy died. A lot of bad things, a lot of wonderful things. You know what the wonderful things are, the miracles that have happened. Somebody paid my way to the Holy Land, some group of people. I don't know where it came from. And I walked the path that Jesus walked, the most wonderful experience of my whole lifetime. And I've spoken all over. Next month, I've got the great honor. My birthday's June the 10th, or 11th. On June the 10th is AA's birthday and the Founders Day Banquet in Akron, Ohio, I've been asked to speak at. Hey. Come on, you know, you gotta know. Are you clapping for me? Are you clapping for me because I'm a finger on the hand of God? Dottie sure by herself is nothing. Oh, I'd like to say I'm something, but I'm nothing. But I can do all things through God in this AA program, and so can you. Make up your mind if you want, how happy you want to be, and don't limit yourself. Because you can be as happy as you make up your mind to be. But, and it says it doesn't take much of a person to work this program, but it takes all of you. And you'll get out of this program what you put in. 
Now, I have a great love affair for people. I have a help button about that big around. After Al and I were divorced, I was working in the pharmacy, not making enough money to live on. And I'm praying to God to get me out of there, because in a pharmacy, you're dispensing nine out of every ten prescriptions for Valium or Librium. And you can't help these people. And like I said, I wasn't making any money, so I started saying, Lord, either help me make more money or get me out of this thing. But I was fully trained in pharmacy, but no other livelihood. And two weeks later, my A baby called. She said, Dottie, my mother died and left me a small inheritance. And I want you to go to school and do the thing you do the best. And I said, I can't take your money. She said, Dottie, would you do it for me? Well, she got me. I said, yes. So I went to UCLA. I worked 40 hours a week, went to school for three and a half years at night. And 16 years ago, I came out of there with my certificate, and I've been in private practice ever since, carrying the message to the people who are bleeding and hurting, the emotionally induced illnesses, which are alcoholism, drug addiction, migraines, high blood pressure, ulcers, colitis. You know, if you don't do something about your deeper seated problem, you're going to become a compulsive overeater, or you're going to have migraines, or you're going to have high blood pressure. We will have to break out somewhere else. Don't do that to yourself. Get in here and find out what your deeper seated problem is. Work your steps, and then walk, not trudge. Walk a happy road of destiny. And give this away as you go along. Now, I had trouble because of my ego, and I'm well aware of it. When people clap and tell me how wonderful I'm, or, geez, I heard my tape, or blah, 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 I think, God, how can I handle this without you know, getting that ego back in there? Because I don't want to get drunk. And there was a woman by the name of Corrie Ten Boone. I don't know how many of you people have heard of her. She was a Dutch woman who took all these people into her home, uh, these, all these Jews, and she was put in a concentration camp and lost members of her family. And she, when she was let out, she was what we call a tramp for the world. She went around talking about the miracles that had happened. And I was in her company one day. And I asked her, I said, how do you handle it? Everybody's looking at you and wanting you to speak and everything. She said, I had a lot of trouble. But she said, I asked the Lord one day, how can I handle this? And he said, I'll tell you what you do. You accept every compliment as a flower. And when you get enough of them together, just hand me the bouquet. And so, you see, I can take the compliments now because I know where it comes from. By myself, I'm nothing. But I can do all things through AA and God. And so it's been, I'm more comfortable now. I can relax and not think... Oh, God, I hope I don't take this. I hope I don't get full of my ego. I don't have to worry. It's not me anyhow. Now, when my youngest sister died three years ago, I went home to the funeral. And she had three kids, late 20s, early 30s. And the middle one got a bad beating emotionally. And she was loving her one minute and hating her the next. And I said, Kathy, you're going to have to deal with this. Your mother was a sick alcoholic. And if you don't deal with your hatred, you're going to make victims of your children. So she said, I said, you bury your hatred with your mother. And she said, well, will you go up the casket with me at the last? So I don't like open caskets. I thought I'll do anything with her. So after everybody had gone, she and I walked up, took her hands like this, and she said, all right, mother, I placed my hatred in the casket. And she turned around to walk away and look back, and she said, you dirty bitch, you'll never hurt me again. <laughs> now, when my sister died, my mother adored her. She dressed her like a princess. My sister sang all over. My mother just lived vicariously through her. Yet my mother said, when she called me that night, Dottie Evelyn died tonight. Thank God it's over. She had three severe hemorrhages, bled from every opening. So my sisters have two epitaphs. One is, thank God it's over. The other one is, you bitch, you'll never hurt me again. What's your epitaph going to be, loved ones? Poor guy, he couldn't get honest. Stopped going to meetings. Couldn't admit they were alcoholic. I don't know what it is. Now you know I'm not dramatic. And I thought, well, all right, my sisters both have an epitaph. It doesn't say Evelyn Singer, 
Evelyn Junior Champion Skier. You think about Evelyn, you think, Evelyn, thank God it's over. The other one, you bitch, you'll never hurt me again. And I thought, well, if we're going to have one, what would I like mine to read? And I think I'd like to have it say, Dottie Shore, well done, oh good and faithful servant, because I've tried. Thank you for my life. For additional copies of this cassette or catalog of other 12-step tapes, call Encore at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com. Good evening. My name is Paul, and I'm a full-blown alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad you're here. Uh, a very dull meeting if uh, you weren't here. Uh, I see some people have to stand, and I always feel bad about people having to stand. And then a little voice says, what the hell? You've got to stand. <laughs> We had a nice time, time coming down, Max and I, and then on the way we picked up Kim and Brad and uh, drove down with them and then met uh, Pat and Diane and went to a Japanese restaurant, had Japanese food and had enough teriyaki steak left over to feed our two Ella dogs, <laughs> Lily, and, Lily and Sabrina. Uh, they're out in the car, they said to tell you hello. And, uh, they come to all our meetings. They come to... The AA meetings with me, and Max comes to AA with me. Thank you. And they come to um, the Al-Anon meetings. Max goes to Al-Anon, I go to Al-Anon too. And the dogs go to both AA and Al-Anon. They go to more meetings than any of us. They go to more meetings than a lot of people are trying to stay sober. And they have nicer personalities than a lot of people are trying to stay sober. I was talking at a meeting last night, I was feeling around in my pockets, and I was talking at a meeting last night, and the guy handed me a, a card, a prayer on it, and it has my, my name on it. It says Paul, and then it says Paul means humble, and I was so glad to hear that. I always wondered why I was so humble, and, uh, and I was glad to find it out. I thought Paul meant small, and I've always hated that name, but now I... Uh, I'm happy to find that I'm humble. Somebody once said that I had a lot of humility, that I've never used any of it yet. And I am humble. I, uh, in fact, um, Walt uh, was asking me about the, the IDAA convention that we were at in uh, Scottsdale just recently. <clears throat> and IDAA is for International Doctors in Alcoholics Anonymous. Isn't that an impressive title for a bunch of drunks wanting to get together and talk about sobriety yeah. and be able to charge it off as a business expense. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I was asked to talk there and that, I was delighted because that filled a lifetime fantasy for me. I've always wanted to be invited someplace to talk 
to a group of doctors about the diagnosis and treatment of a serious medical problem where I had uh, I could talk as an authority uh, and I, uh, I I don't like to travel uh, it's not that I'm afraid of airplanes or heights or anything just that I find it boring and I'd rather stay home and talk to the phone and, and go to meetings and they waste my time in airports and so on but anyway I was willing to fly to Sweden or wherever it is that the uh, king gives the Nobel Prize in medicine I thought if they were willing to give it to me, the least I could do is be there, go there and receive it. And I was going to get the Nobel Prize for developing a, a cure and for well, cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, a few medical problems. And you remember the movie Amadeus, where they, um, I identified with the, uh, not with the Mozart, the musician, I identified with uh, the, the, the villain, Salieri. Remember Salieri? In the beginning of the movie, he attempted suicide, and at the end of the movie, he was in the insane asylum, and he was giving his blessing to the other inmates. And Salieri, and God drove Salieri crazy. Uh, I really identify with Salieri. What Salieri wanted was he wanted he was a hardworking musician, and he wanted God to make him famous. Now, he was willing to work hard, but he wanted God to give him the fame. And instead of giving the fame to him, he gave it to this little jerk Mozart. And it literally drove Salieri crazy. And um, I identified with him, because that, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to win the Nobel Prize in medicine and get famous. And when I was famous, then I would give all the credit to God. Uh, I was going to make God famous. Uh, but, all, all he had to do was make me famous first. And, and, and I would do all the work. All that he had to do was give me the, the cause for cancer and high blood pressure and diabetes. And if you know, he already knows those things. And all he had to do was tell me. And, 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 and that's all he had to do was give me a few little secrets. And I would become famous and I'd make him famous. I thought it was a real bargain. But he never bought it. He never bought it. But he not only didn't make me famous, he made me anonymous. And, uh, <laughs> Wants me to speak directly to the microphone. My name is Paul, and I'm a real alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad you're here. And Lily and Sabrina are glad you're here. The, I, I, I have gone through a lot of trouble to. Uh, create this story, and I'd sure hate to have you miss it. Um, but I imagine you could stay sober without it. I don't know if I could. Uh, anyhow, I enjoy being an alcoholic. I, I really enjoy being an alcoholic. This is the best life I've ever known. I, uh, I, I enjoy this way of life. I enjoy what my disease does to me such that I have to do the things I have to do that make my life so much better. And um, I hear people say they're not glad to be an alcoholic, but they're glad to have the program. Well, I don't know what good it would be to have the program without having the disease. I don't see very many people knocking the doors down, trying to come in and work our program if they're not alcoholic uh, or somehow connected with alcoholism. So I'm, I'm glad to be an alcoholic. And if that bothers you uh, that I say that, uh, talk to your sponsor. Uh, <laughs> if you don't have one, get one. 
Yeah. If your sponsor doesn't can't explain it to you, you get a different sponsor. Uh, I uh, so anyway, it's a good way to go. Another thing about uh, meeting with Brad and uh, uh, Kim, uh, Brad and I are meeting uh, every Tuesday night, and twelve of us get together. And we are studying the first 102 pages of the book and doing the steps as we come to them. I uh, picked up some mimeograph sheets down in Texas one time, or they were from Texas, where they would get together and have a group of uh, whatever size they wanted and meet for 20 weeks in order to study the book and do the steps as they come to them. And uh, nobody could join the group once they started, and you hopefully you wouldn't drop out once you started. So it wasn't a step study, it's a step to do it. And um, I got these sheets and cleaned them up and uh, edited and made a pamphlet out of it. And so that's what we're working on is going through the steps. And the point is, this will be the um, fifth time I have done all the steps thoroughly in 26 years. And so it's about every five years that I, I, I didn't set it out that way, it just happened that way. Now I know there are people that say they only do the steps once, and that's it, you know, you just do the maintenance steps 10, 11, and 12 thereafter. And I think people who do it once and don't do it again should only do it once and not do it again. And the people who do the steps every year on their birthday, they ought to do it every year on their birthday. Whatever anybody does, that's the way they ought to do it. But I'm just saying what I've done, and the thing I find interesting about doing this the way I have, I have no plans for the future, but the way I have done it, every time I've done the steps, I've moved to a new plateau in my sobriety, just like the first time I did it. Uh, I went from where I was up into a plateau, and now I've done that every time this way. And I, um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that if you're having a hard time right now, and you don't know what to do, and things are bad, and if it's been a while since you've done the steps, you might consider doing them over again. Uh, if, um, and in fact, if it's too early in your, if people tell you it's too early in your sobriety to do that, uh, to take the force of this step. Uh, you tell them I gave you permission to do them over again. There's no additional charge. Uh, but I find my answers in the steps. Uh, I find uh, it's, a, it's a good way for me to go. In fact, I, I said something that's over 26 years. That was the last day of last month. I celebrated my 26th birthday. And uh, so, actually, you're, you're just nowhere near as impressed as I am. Uh, I, uh, that's quite a, that's 26 years. 20, 26 years is the longest I have ever gone without a drink. And 26 years is a long time between drinks for me. I, uh, I, had, I had no plans of going that long. And in fact, when I came to AA, I didn't really want to talk about drinking. I wanted to talk about my problems. I came to AA via the nut ward of the hospital I was on the staff of. And um, the only reason I came to AA was that uh, getting a pass to go to AA was the only way I could get off of the nut ward. And uh, when I got out of the nut ward, I had no intentions of continuing to go to these dumb meetings because it wasn't even an alcoholic. Uh, but I, uh, they, I forget what I started to say. Was anybody listening? I wasn't listening. I, I got so fascinated with being on the nut ward. I, I, I didn't like it. It was a strange nut ward. They had a fascination there with uh, making leather belts. They, they were trying to convince me that my life would be improved if I learned how to make leather belts. 
I didn't, I didn't, that didn't follow, that made no sense to me at all. I mean, I, and I tried to point out to them that I have a whole wall full of licenses and degrees, diplomas and papers to prove that I've been educated way beyond my level of intelligence. And they're trying to tell me, they're trying to tell me that my life would be improved if I learned how to make leather belts. I didn't understand the philosophy. And besides, I didn't understand the instructions. And, <laughs> well, that wasn't my fault. That was the fault of that occupational therapist, because I've always had a theory. If you don't understand a thing well enough, you can explain it to me. So I understand that you don't understand as well as you're supposed to. And uh, she'd already explained it to me three times, and I wasn't going to embarrass her by asking a fourth time. And I, uh, as a matter of fact, it's an odd thing, too. I went to an AA meeting. Uh, that was a problem in itself. I remember sitting there at the ward, commiserating with myself about the things that had gone wrong, that a nice guy like me had ended up in a place like that. And I said, the misdiagnosis and the poor medical management and the poor care that I got, and the things that went wrong. And I was really feeling quite sorry for myself. And this dumb psychiatrist, who couldn't see that my problems were marital, locked up in. And he wanted to know if I would talk to a man from Malcolm's Nun. And I thought, God almighty, Doc, yeah. don't I have enough problems of my own without trying to help some drunk from AA? <laughs> I didn't even know anything about alcoholism. Didn't want to know anything about alcoholism. Certainly didn't want to treat any alcoholism. You treat one, if word spreads, you get them all, they'd all be coming to you. Yeah. Well, a lot of alcoholics. Then all your good patients would know you treat alcoholics and they'd stop coming. So all you'd have would be alcoholics. And they never pay their bills or come on time when they have an appointment anyway. And so I said, but I could tell by the look on his face that he thought it was a good idea. And I don't know if you know that or not, but happiness on the nut ward is having a happy psychiatrist. And uh, I said, yes, and uh, no time at all, this clown comes galloping into the room yelling, my name is Frank and I'm an alcoholic. Ah. I felt sorry for him. The only thing in life he had to brag about was the fact he was an alcoholic. I was a lot more impressed when I found out he was uh, an attorney. And, uh, all I remember about his story was it was long. My God, it was long. It was an interminable story. And then a loud voice, a loud voice, he shouted everything. He said, that's drunk, that's alcoholics, and alcoholics and I thought, my God, man, why don't you lower your voice? These people all think I'm a nut. Why don't we leave it at that? I don't remember a word he said, except the, I remember how he ended. He finally said, well, that's my story. I'm going to the meeting tonight. Would you like to go along? And I said, hell no, I won't like it, but I'll go. Because I figured he'd go back and tell him that dumb psychiatrist. And he would have. And I went to the meeting. And I have no idea what meeting we were at, or what they said, or who led, or who prayed, or anything that happened to me. But I know the meeting had a profound effect on the uh, psychiatrist. And, he was delighted. He wanted to know all about the meetings and what are the kind of meetings they had and what's this about steps and what's this about a book and how often do they have meetings and when are you going back again? And I thought, my God, I've got me an alcoholic psychiatrist. He's ashamed to go, so he's sending me. And I wondered how many meetings I'd have to go to before I could get him sober so I could go home. And I went to all the meetings I could. I got discharged and I had no intentions of uh, continuing.
continuing to go, but the, my problem was that Max had decided she liked me. And um, she did something she couldn't do. I, well, of course, once I found out she liked him, then I decided when she didn't act right, I decided I wouldn't go to AA anyway. I'd punish her. And she uh, decided she did something she couldn't do. She got in the car and drove all the way to Laguna Beach. We lived in Anaheim. She went to Laguna Beach. We all got some meetings from Laguna Beach, so we wouldn't run into anybody we knew. Uh, and uh, now I've run into everybody that goes to Laguna Beach, so they won't run into anybody they know. Uh, and she got in the car and she drove down the freeway and went to the beach by herself, something she couldn't even do. And I don't know if you've ever tried that. Sitting at home on a Saturday night, drinking while your non-alcoholic spouse is off laughing it up at an AA meeting. <laughs> I found it very boring and uh, had to go back to the meetings to find out what they were laughing about. And uh, seemed to me they laughed at anything. They laughed at nothing. They laughed at everything. But, uh, and I found it embarrassing. They laughed at things they ought to be embarrassed about. They even laughed at their drinking, for God's sake. <clears throat> One night, uh, seven months later, I uh, found myself laughing with him, and I haven't had a drink since. And I uh, think the laughter uh, has a lot to do with the uh, recovery. <clears throat> In fact, I found <clears throat> that when alcoholics laugh, my higher power laughs, uh, even when he doesn't get the joke. Yeah? Uh, he just enjoys the laughter, and uh, uh, he laughs along with him. And that's good for me. And I haven't had a drink since I started laughing with him. And as I say, that was 26 years ago. And I uh, <clears throat> was talking to uh, came with, uh, to me because I wanted to talk about my problems. That's what I was talking about when I lost my point. You thought I'd never get back to it, didn't you? <laughs> the, uh, I went down my problems. They wanted to talk about drinking. And uh, it took me the seven months to find out that my drinking was the mother of all my problems. That, uh, I had to take care of that first. The interesting thing I found about that, I think I said this earlier, was that what I found what I have to do to keep from drinking is the same thing I have to do to solve the problems that I thought were driving me to drink. And uh, they, uh, in fact, I thought Max was driving me to drink. And uh, well, as a matter of fact, I do think she drove me to drink. <laughs> But um, they, oddly enough, we were married, what, about 28 years, I think, when we came to the program. And um, we're still married. And uh, December the 2nd of this year, we will have been married 54 years. And uh, I'll, I'll drink to that. And that's been uh, an interesting thing to work on. And uh, because I have uh, these people in my head. I don't know how things are with you, but I don't know how you think, but I think with somebody is talking, always talking, talk, 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 talk. If I'm awake, and even much of the time when I'm not awake, I'm dreaming, but all that time there's conversations going on in my head. I have these people that live in my head, and uh, they talk all the time. They talk, 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 all the time talk. That's, that's, all, that's all they do, as a matter of fact. They never do any work. They just talk, talk. And they, um, and they don't even agree with each other. It isn't as if they're just talking, talk, talk, talk. They get to fighting and arguing back. Well, they're doing it now, as a matter of fact. 
digging up there, and one of them decides something I ought to talk about, and the other one says, no, don't talk about that. Talk about what I want to talk about. And I said, no, I don't want to talk about that. And they get arguing back and forth, and it's real hard for me to stand here and have a conversation with you with them chattering away in my head. I'm trying to get ideas from them, but not be distracted by them. And I think, my God, why don't you shut up up there, you know? And they all shut up, and I can't think of anything to say. But my life is determined by how I get along with those people up there. They, uh, if they say it's a terrible world, it's a bad day, everything is awful, uh, I have a terrible day. And if they think it's a great day and everything is wonderful, I have a good day. It's, uh, and that's what I started to say about the marriage. Um, I've said this just recently, that uh, one of the people in my head is obsessed with Max. Uh, yourself. Uh, he's, a, he's obsessed with Max, and he's constantly watching her, and he doesn't, and he, re, and he doesn't really care much for her, and he's always reporting back to me what she just said, or what she just did. Did you notice the tone of voice in which she just said that? <laughs> what kind of a man would live with a woman that would talk about him like that? And always pointing out these things about her, negative things. He's always, he's always able to find something negative to complain about, too. But there's another one up there that's just as obsessed with Max, but he likes her. And he likes to report to me, too, things about, he'll say things about, isn't she attractive? Doesn't she have a great sense of humor? Aren't you lucky you had somebody that went to AA or went to AA meetings, even though they were now alcoholic and you didn't want to go? Aren't you lucky that she still goes to Alma? Aren't you lucky that she's so active in the program? Aren't you lucky to have her? Doesn't she, have, uh, uh, isn't she attractive? And my, my marriage, my marriage depends on which one of those two people I listen to. Apparently, they're both right. That's the law of, uh, we were talking about this, uh, Brad and I were talking about this earlier. That's the law of appreciation. The law of appreciation says that here on earth, every person, place, thing, situation, meeting, institution, corporation, law, or any combination thereof, has both good and bad in it. If there is a place called heaven, maybe up there everything will be 100% good. And if there's a place called hell, maybe there everything will be 100% bad. But here on earth, everything, every person placing his situation has both good and bad in it. The trick is, if you watch the good, it gets gooder. And if you watch the bad, it gets badder. Have you ever noticed, have you ever had the, I'm sure you've had the occasion to feel bad and have some goof tell you to write a gratitude list, which is the last thing you want to do when you're feeling bad. But the more you focus on the things you have to be grateful for, the better you feel. It's because we changed our focus. We look at what's good about life instead of what's bad about life. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm talking about things being bad. I heard that, that somebody said that you should never commit suicide on a bad day. <laughs> and the reason is that they said however you feel, at the time you commit suicide, that's the way you're going to feel all through eternity. Yeah, they said, so you should always wait to kill yourself on a good day. <laughs> but, 
anyhow, I, I find it, I, I need to focus on, I need to keep my focus on what's good about life rather than what's bad about life. That's a, I think that's one of the major things that happened to me in AA, is to, to um, find that I have that choice. I not only have that choice, I have that responsibility. Uh, I, I find a lot of times in the morning, I'll get up and I'll, I'll go out in the world and I'll, early in the, in the day, it's a good time to do it. And I'll ask people, I'll say, you can have a good day, you can have a good day today? And it's interesting, the answers you get. They, they don't know what we know, because we're taught that AA means altered attitudes, and that our attitude is our choice. And then I remember one time I was asked this uh, young girl, and uh, I said, you gonna have a good day today? And she said, oh, I have to work today. And, and I, uh, I, I remember asking another one, and, um, and she said, well, well, uh, well uh, that depends. You know, in other words, her attitude depended on what was going to happen that day. She didn't know she had a choice in that. Uh, I remember another gal, I asked her, and she got real defensive. She said, what's the matter? I look like I'm having a good day yet. You know? <laughs> God, I don't want to fight about it. I just want to know if we're going to have a good day. You know? That's why on the program they say, give yourself a good day. Unless, you, unless you've got other plans. Uh, but I, I, that's been an important thing for me. And the same way with this talk, I used to think I had to get along well with the people out there, and if I did well with them, then I'd be comfortable inside. In fact, I used to try, I used to pretend to be what I thought people wanted me to be so that they would like me. And I thought if they liked me, then I would like me. And today I find I do just the opposite of that. I act as if I were the person I want to become in order to become that person. I will act unafraid in order to become unafraid. I will act spiritual in order to become spiritual. I will act loving in order to become loving. Not in order to fool somebody else, but in order to change me. It makes all the difference in the world. And, um, but I used to, I had to uh, learn to get along with the people with the personalities in my head rather than with the people out there. And the more comfortable I get with the people in my head, the easier it is to get along with the people out there. And um, that's where the steps in the, the uh, program has come in for me. I love the, the first step where the powerlessness. I find that most of the time when I'm upset about something, it's because I'm working on trying to change something over which I'm powerless, such as somebody else's attitude very easy for me to pick up on Max's attitude and want to change her rather than changing myself. And I'm powerless over her attitude. But when I find that out, then I find I have no responsibility to that and I can relax and go on with other things. Speaking of, of uh, her attitude, Father Barney used to come down from um, Seattle area and put on retreats for uh, alcoholics now and on. And uh, he used to break sobriety down he said it was like a baseball diamond. And he said that first base was physical sobriety, second base was mental sobriety, third base was emotional sobriety, and home plate was spiritual sobriety. I like that. I like breaking things down into parts that I can handle. I wondered how I got to first base uh, without God's help. And somebody pointed out, well, you can't get to first base without starting at home plate. And so I, then I thought, well, that's fine. I understand that. 
And it seemed to me that we get physically sober and then we take the first step. We admit our powerless over alcohol. And then the, the second step is just this side of the sec of me uh, second base, the mental sobriety. Come to believe that a far greater ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the rest of the steps are distributed out around the rest of the steps. And it seems to me that we spend our lives in recovery on that diamond, either progressing into spiritual sobriety, further into it, or unconsciously drifting back toward the drink. Seems to me we don't spend time standing still. We're either moving forward or drifting backward. And uh, I like that concept. I, I, it's the same way with the staying sober. When I decided uh, that I came to these meetings for the seven months, like I said, and finally accepted the fact that I was a mild alcoholic, uh, then I decided that uh, I would make a commitment to uh, AA and to sobriety. And I uh, you know, found that I had tried, every time I had tried to quit drinking before, I ended up getting drunk. And I remember you talked about this doing it a day at a time. I, I always thought that wouldn't do any good to be doing it one day at a time. What could this one day do? But I decided to try it. In fact, I decided I just won't drink today and see what happens. And nothing happened. And so I decided to try it for another day. And nothing happened that day. And that's what I've been doing. One day at a time, I just don't drink. Just today is a very important day for me. Today is the day I don't drink. I drank many yesterday, and I'm going to drink tomorrow, but I don't drink today. In fact, I don't know if I could keep from drinking today if I didn't know I was going to drink tomorrow. Uh, but when tomorrow gets here, I'll check the time, and if it's today, I won't drink today. <laughs> and that seems to be working very well for me, and I can handle the, the voices in my head that, uh, a day at a time. And uh, I no longer fight with them and uh, I listen to their talking. In fact, even like uh, we were talking tonight at dinner about whether or not I drink caffeine, I used to have to give my, uh, those people in my head drugs to either wake them up or put them to sleep. And, I had to get them to settle down and go to sleep before I could go to sleep. Uh, and now I'm not, today I'm really impressed with how uh, sensitive they are, even to caffeine. I, I mean, uh, the, the, the talk up there is talk, 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 talk. But even if I drink caffeine now, they just talk, 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 talk. Yeah. I'll get home from a meeting like this and out my body will lie down and go to sleep. My brain will say, no, let's play here and talk about it for a while. You know? <laughs> or, uh, 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 I will get to sleep even in the 3 o'clock in the morning. They'll say, hey, wake up. We've had an emergency meeting and we need to talk to you. <laughs> you, say, you know that thing that you thought you handled so well and went so well today? It wasn't like that at all. <laughs> they're really, they're really ticked off at you. Wait in the morning, you'll find out, you know. And I'll think, God, oh, I don't want to listen to that crap. And I'll roll over and go back to sleep. And just as I'm about to lose consciousness, I'll think, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not thinking about that anymore. And then one will say, oh, I'm glad you're still awake. You know, that's not, that's not, that's not the only time you did that. You know, you know, in fact, about six months ago, you did the same dumb thing. In fact, we've decided you're one of the dumbest people we've ever met. And let's, let's spend the rest of the night making lists of dumb things you have done. And they, uh, really can tie into me and, 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 and speaking of um, having to put them to sleep and wake them up what I I've always had a sleeping problem I was born with congenital insomnia 
And um, if you want to go crazy, decide you have a sleeping problem and then decide to work on it. It's a real example of working on the problem makes it worse. I mean, I, working on any problem for me makes the problem worse. Um, in fact, I don't even have a problem until I get to thinking I have one. You know, think about that for a minute. Uh, I don't have a problem unless I think I do. Uh, no matter what anybody else thinks, if I don't think I have a problem, I don't have a problem. And I alone determine, if I have a problem, I alone determine the size of my problem. If I think it's a big problem, it's a big problem. And if I think it's a little problem, it's just a little problem. I, uh, I, I don't have many little problems, though. I don't bother with them. Uh, it's like resentment. I don't bother with any but the justifiable one. Uh, or either I have a little problem, all I have to do is think about it and watch it grow. My mind puts energy into whatever it thinks about. And I can take any little, little problem and just think about it and watch it grow. In fact, I don't even have to start with a problem. I can start with a non-problem. Say, well, hell, that's no problem. Boy, I suppose you thought about it. It could be a little bit of a problem. And, and the bigger it gets, the easier it is to keep thinking about it. And pretty soon I'm thinking, my gosh, it's a good thing I'm looking at this. You know, everybody else is missing it. Yeah. And, it, it just, and, and, and another thing about problems is, your problems are extremely fickle. You can't neglect problems. Problems are like a premature infants. They need a tremendous amount of attention and care and observation. You have to stay right with the problems and worry about them. Uh, stay with them. That's why people calling on the phone can be very distracting to working on your problems. Because uh, you get on the phone, people get to talk. I mean, even if you know the answer to the problem, you can't just stop and give it to them. You have to listen. You have to sound interested. You have to do active listening. That's the thing you're supposed to do, active listening. That means you ask them questions like, oh, and then, oh, and then what did you do? And oh, and then how did you feel? Oh, tell me more. And then what else happened after that? You keep asking them questions until neither one of you can stand it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> And by that time, you give them the, then you give them the answer. What's the answer? Take a number from 1 to 12. Work that step. You know, and, and write a gratitude list. Write the, write the serenity prayer. And uh, then you go back to your problem. You find out your problem didn't wait around for you. It just went off and it'll go find somebody to give more attention. Uh, more problems are solved by ignoring them by, than by working on them. Speaking of working on problems, I mentioned resentment. I told this story the other night. I was, uh, I would never tell a story like this, but uh, was a David Viscott. You know, David Viscott's a psychiatrist that, uh, on TV and radio. He's written some books. And he had this one book on uh, various emotional symptoms and what you do about them. And uh, I didn't think he could tell us anything, but I was leafing through the book to see what he had. And he had a thing on resentments. That's a word I hadn't even heard much before it came into AA. And I thought, well, he's not going to be able to tell us anything about resentments. But he said, um, he's telling us what to do about if you resent somebody. He says, you write their name on a piece of paper. And I thought, okay. And he says, write it in bold letters. And I said, okay. And he says, tear it up. And I said, okay. He says, tear it up vigorously. And okay, I'll tear it up vigorously. 
He says, then throw it in the toilet. I said, okay, I'll throw it in the toilet. He says, then use the toilet. you could pray for the SOB while you're using the toilet. The, uh... <laughs> 